Thank you guys. Welcome to Chi Alpha. Are you guys happy to be here? Yeah. Woo! Me too. All right, so if you guys are new with us, I know it's the beginning of the semester, I want to welcome you guys. Um, as Maxwell said, I am indeed Sean McEntee, and I am glad that you're here. So if you guys are cool with it, I'm just going to go ahead and jump right on in. So as I said, if you're new with us or if you um, were here last week and you have already forgotten what our new series is, we are in a new series called The, the uh, Normal Christian Life. This is our fancy picture that Katie Sombrio created for us. Uh, yes, The Normal Christian Life. We're looking at what is God's standard for what the normal Christian is, right? What is normal? Not the average, not what everyone else is doing, right? But what does God say is normal, right? And so what we pointed out last week, though, is before you ever become a Christian, you got to be saved, right? And you got to be saved from sin. And so sin, it's not some light topic, right? It's, 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 it's a big deal. And sin, it has to be understood, it has to be talked about, and it has to be dealt with if we're going to understand and appreciate the normal Christian life. And so sin, it's not something fun to talk about, right? It's part of the reason why I wore this pineapple shirt. It's a fun shirt, right? We're talking about sin. Sin's not fun. So I wanted to be fun and festive, right? So, um, yes, thank you, Katie. Uh, I think that was Katie that said that. Last week I was wrong, whoever said something. But anyways, so sin, right, we're talking about sin. So we're talking about seeing our sin, hating our sin, and forsaking our sin. And, and the reason we're talking about sin is because if we don't, then salvation and the cross and God's love and God's mercy, right, they're not going to have the real weight that they deserve, and they're just going to go in one ear and out the other. And so last week we talked about seeing our sin as God sees sin, right? And so what is sin? What did we come to? Sin is a choice, right? Sin is a willful, calculated, selfish choice that goes against God's laws and against his heart and is ultimately our responsibility. That was kind of what we came down to, right? But here is a pretty thought-provoking question. Is seeing our sin for what it is enough? It is just seeing our sin enough? No, right? Pretty obvious question, right? Most of y'all could have been like, no, right? Because obviously not, right? We're talking about hating our sin and forsaking our sin. We've got three weeks of this. No, but why is seeing our sin not, not enough? How many of you guys have ever used WebMD before? How many of you guys have ever thought you were going to die after you used WebMT before? <laughs> right, you're like, oh, I've got this little rash. Oh, my God. Ah! Right, like, okay, who knows the issue? Who knows the problem with using WebMD? This is the issue. Well, the issue is just using WebMD, right? <laughs> you should go to a doctor. The real, okay, here's the issue with using WebMD. It's that people confuse self-diagnosis with actual treatment, right? It's that people think that just because they now all of a sudden know what their issue is, that all of a sudden their problem is fixed. It's the people that think, oh, well, I've got a gluten allergy, therefore all of a sudden my problem is fixed. Well, no, 
your problem isn't fixed, right? And so to figure out what's wrong with you, that's important, right? That's very important. It's incredibly important. But just because you found out what's wrong with you doesn't mean your problem is fixed. And the same is true of sin. Yes, it's crucial for us to see our sin. But just because we've seen our sin does not mean we are free of it. It's crucial. It's essential. It's foundational that we see our sin as God sees it. But it must go on from there. We must then hate our sin. We must hate our sin as God hates our sin. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at why. Why should we hate our sin? Why does God hate sin? So what we're going to do is answer this question of why. And from the get-go, I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to tell you why we should hate our sin and why God hates sin. The reason why God hates sin is because there is nothing more destructive or corrosive or hurtful than sin in the entire universe. Sin does nothing but destroy everything that it touches. And what we will see tonight is that we should hate sin because of how it hurts us, how it hurts those around us, and how, most importantly, it hurts God. We should see our sin for what it is, and we should hate our sin for what it does. And so, with that laid out, let me just pray, and then we're going to jump into the Bible. Jesus, would you speak to me tonight? Would you speak through me? God, would you take what I've prepared and would you bless it? Oh, Jesus, would you take the information and would you, be, would you take it and make it revelation to our hearts? And would it lead to transformation in our life, God? Oh, please, Jesus, speak through me. We need to hear from you tonight. Holy Spirit, take our minds and, and just do what you will with them. We trust you, Jesus. Amen. You guys, I love the Bible. I hope you guys love the Bible, too. And one thing, there you go, Ian. One thing I love about the Bible is that the Bible never flatters anyone other than God. Look, the Bible does not flatter its heroes. It never tries to paint anyone in a good light, right? It just kind of tells you who they were, and it's like, this is, this is their reality. And this could not be truer than the person in the life of David. And tonight, y'all, we're going to be camping in the story of David, in David's life. And a lot of you guys know David's story, right? Who was David? David was the king of Israel, and he was called a man after God's own heart. He was the epitome of a godly man. He was a righteous man and a holy man. He was the standard for good morals. He was a leader of men, a war hero, a musician, right? He was God's Every man, he was the greatest king Israel ever had. But, if you know the story, then you know he also committed one of maybe the most widely known sins in all of the Bible. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he saw her bathing on the roof. Right? And then he went and got her pregnant, and killed her husband, and then he ruined his nation, and he caused everything to go into a colossal downward spiral. And so here was this mighty man of God who was esteemed highly and then fell so low. And his sin caused so much pain and so much destruction, firstly to himself, secondly to those around him, 
but most importantly, to God. So let's start with how his sin hurt himself. The first reason why you and I should hate our sin is because of how our sin hurts us. When we look at David's life and what happened because of his own sin, we see a cluster bomb of destruction that this dude brought on himself. You guys should know this. When we sin, y'all, it sucks. So if you don't remember the story of David and how this goes, so what happened was he saw, he saw uh, Bathsheba bathing on a roof, and he said, I want her, right? And so he went and he brought her to himself, and, and he slept with her, okay? And then he gets her pregnant, and he's like, oh, shoot. What did I do? So he brings her husband in from war, and he, try, and he tries to cover it up by having him sleep with his wife so that he'll just think that he got her pregnant, right? But Uriah, her husband, is an honorable man. He says, I can't do that. I'm at war. So he won't sleep with his wife. And so then David says, all right, you know what? Got to cover this up. So he goes and kills him. And then just says, all right, now that I've covered this up and I've taken care of it, I'm going to lie low for a while. But then a prophet named Nathan comes, right? And what he does is he confronts David with this parable, and he says, there's this, there's this one man who has this little lamb that he's taking care of, and there's another man who has thousands of sheep. And the man who has the thousands of sheep comes and steals from the one man who has the one little lamb, and he says, David, what should, what should be done to the man who steals? And David, in this anger, says, you should make that man pay, and you should make him pay back, and he should be, oh, and he gets all mad. And then Nathan says, David, you're the man. You're that man who stole the one little sheep. Now, we have all heard this story probably, but my question to you is, do you guys know how long it was between when David sinned and when Nathan confronted him? Does anyone know how long it was? It was over a year. It was over a year. For over one full year, David tried to pretend like his sin did not happen. Can you guys imagine that? He tried to hide this for a year. His son had actually been born and had lived long enough for his heart to become attached to his son. But you guys, for over a year, he tried to pretend to his nation and to his now wife and to his friends. He tried to pretend to them like this didn't happen. But y'all, the damage had been done. And the destructiveness of sin was running its course in his life. And we know this because if you were with us last week, he says this in Psalm 32, the psalm that I read at the end. He said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He was talking about this. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the, the heat of summer. Y'all, David was an absolute mess inside and out. Initially, or internally, the dude was a complete wreck. His conscience was completely seared. The dude didn't even know how to make sense of right and wrong anymore. He didn't know how to make sense of right and left. He couldn't lead his kingdom. The internal weight of, of, of what was going on because of what he did, you know what he did? He just hid. He couldn't lead his country. He didn't know how to lead his own home. He just hid from his people. 
He just secluded himself. And then what was going on externally? Well, he tells us. He says, my bones wasted away. My strength dried up. Now, we could say this was metaphorical, but I don't think he was being. The internal weight of sin has physical repercussions on our bodies. Headaches, bone pain, heaviness, weakness. David was experiencing real physical pain because of his sin. Now, how many of you guys know what I'm talking about? How many of you know what I mean when we talk about sin hurting us? How many of us understand David's situation? What I'm talking about here with sin is the kind of thing that deteriorates and destroys our lives from the inside out. And what David was experiencing because of sin isn't any different than what our sin can do to us. If we just stop for a second and think about right now, this was, this was thousands of years ago, but if we think about right now, what can our sin do to us? Our sin can isolate us. It can cut us off from life-giving community. Our sin can push us away from everyone and everything that we need. Our sin can lead to anxiety, to mental instability, to depression. Now, I'm not saying that all that stuff is caused by sin, but I guarantee that it can be. Our sin can lead to deadly diseases, to STDs, to kids. Any of y'all want kids right now? I think there's like six of y'all in this room that are married. The rest of y'all want kids? Our sin can put huge financial strains on y'all. Y'all got money? Y'all want more strains? Our sin can get us fired from our jobs. Our sin can get us kicked out of college. Our sin can get us thrown in jail. Heck, your sin can get you killed. Sin hurts us. It's an offense to our very lives. And while some people might say, well, hey, Sean, isn't it selfish for Christians to be so concerned with us? Isn't that kind of selfish? My response to that is that Jesus commanded us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We should rightfully hate our sin for how much it hurts us. Firstly, we should see that our sin is an offense to us, and we should hate it for how much it hurts us. Now we're going to jump back into the story of David and go deeper into why we should hate our sin, namely because it hurts others. Now i got a question for you guys. By show of hands... You guys can put your hands up. This question is going to sound kind of harsh, but I mean it lightheartedly. How many of you guys, when you sin, feel like you deserve to be punished? So just raise your hand. You feel like, right, you kind of, that's most hands, you kind of just like, oh, yeah, you beat yourself up, right? Now, I'm not going to go into that. There's some theology we could go into. That's not where we're going tonight. For those of you who raised your hands, by show of hands again, how many of you feel that when you sin, other people deserve to be punished for your sin? I figured there'd be no hands. Now, I know this sounds like a simple question, a simple idea, but I, I don't know of anyone who actually thinks that other people deserve to be punished for our sin. And yet, day in and day out, we keep sinning. And we keep hurting other people. When we look back at David's life and the sin he committed, committed y'all, his sin was destructive. 
It was so far-reaching. Let's just look at some of the people closest to him. We're not even going to go into all the people, but just some of the people closest to him. Look first at, at Bathsheba. We, must, we mustn't look at her as some whimsical, dumb girl who was just kind of wooed by money and power. This was a woman seduced and pressured by her king and put in a position she should have never been put in. You guys, David came to her. David sought her out and put her in a position she shouldn't have had to be put in. Yes, she was responsible. She said yes. She had responsibility and culpability. But she should not have been put in that position in the first place. And she had to live with that for the rest of her life. She had to look him in the face. Or look at Uriah, her husband. This was one of David's best friends. You guys, there was a group of men called David's Mighty Men. There was 33 guys that traveled around with David. And they protected him when he was being hunted by the previous king, Saul. And Uriah was one of these men. He was one of David's best friends, right? And so when he's called in by David, he thinks, oh, man, the king is here. He's, he's honoring me, right? Or he's, he's calling me in for some glorious honor. And then he's not really sure what David's doing. He doesn't really understand it. And then all of a sudden, David says, okay, here's this scroll, this, this thing. I need you to bring it back to your commanding officer. And he's like, he's like, but don't read it. And Uriah's like, awesome. David trusts me with this, little knowing that it's his death sentence. And so what is Uriah's reward for faithful obedience to his adulterous king? Death. Or look at, look at the result of David's sin on Bathsheba and his own son. It's also death. God takes Bathsheba and David's son from them. An innocent child is taken into the arms of God because of David's sin. Or then there's Joab. David's high commanding officer in his army. Joab was made an unwilling accomplice in the murder of Uriah. He was made an unwilling accomplice in the murder of a man. He didn't want to be a part of this, and he was made it. And so he lost respect for his king, and in later years would repay David by undermining him. Then there's another man named Ahitophel, which was the father of Bathsheba, who, guys, this was David's lead councilman. He was, the, he was the mind behind the kingdom of Israel, and he was David's lead mind. He was the lead strategist. And when David did this to his daughter, he went and switched allegiances, and he then became the lead strategist and mastermind behind a conspiracy and anarchy to overthrow David because of David's sin. Or look at David's sons, Amnon and Absalom. Because of David's model and his life, Amnon looked at David's sexual sin and said, well, my dad did this sexual sin, so he went and raped his own sister. And then Absalom looked at the way that his father killed a man and said, all right, well, I'm going to go kill my brother for raping my sister. And then got thrown out of the country for killing his brother, and then had bitterness towards his father for getting thrown out. And so he's the one who wanted to overthrow his father, and so he recruited the, the father of Bathsheba. Y'all, look. 
murder, incest, fratricide, rebellion, anarchy, intrigue, national decay. This is more interesting than any drama you've ever seen on Netflix. And all of it was traceable to David's sin. Sin is so utterly destructive, so corrosive, so painful. And what it did in David's life, it does in ours too. How many of you guys have ever heard of a man named G.K. Chesterton? G.K. Chesterton is awesome. He's, he was alive in the early 1900s. A very big guy. It's like 400 pounds. Not very healthy. But incredible genius of a man. Uh, loved Jesus. And in the London Times in 1930s, they had sent out um, a question to a bunch of famous authors, and they, and they asked them all, what's wrong with the world? And they wanted answers from them. And so a bunch of them wrote back, wrote back things like, oh, it's war, or it's the big businesses, or it's Germany right after World War I, and it's this and it's that. And they had all these answers. But this is what G.K. Chesterton wrote back. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton understood sin. It's not enough just to say that we are the problem with the world. We have to go much, get much more real than that. I am the problem. My sin is the problem. What's wrong with the world? My sin. The pain and the hurt all over the world, the hunger and the war and the turmoil and the suffering and the loneliness and the destruction, that is because of my sin. Sin destroys abroad and sin destroys at home. Sin hurts others and for that it should be hated. It's one thing if we sin and get punished for it, right? That, that, whether that's right theology or not, we all kind of are like, sure, I should be punished for my own sin. That's on us. But when sin starts affecting someone else, when sin starts destroying someone else's life, man, it should be rightfully hated. And again, some people might say, well, Sean, isn't that humanism? Isn't that caring more about humans than the standards of Christianity? To which I would again just quote the words of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. Sin is worthy of all hatred for how it hurts us personally and how it hurts others around us. It is heinous and destructive in the highest order. And you guys, we could talk on and on about how sin hurts us. We could have counsel sessions for each of us about how our own sin has hurt us, right? We can talk about how much we've hurt ourselves. And we could talk on days and weeks and months about how some other people have hurt us, how their sin has hurt us. None of that would be bad. None of that would be wrong. None of that would be wasted. But more than the hurt that I have felt from sin... More than the hurt that Heather has felt from sin. More than the hurt that Charles has felt from sin. More than the hurt that Haley or Micah or Jay or Taylor or, or some kid in Africa or the homeless guy on the stairs outside. More than any of us, more than the pain that any of us have felt from sin, we must know that God has been infinitely hurt over sin more than any of us. 
God has been hurt by sin the most. And David knew this to be true when he wrote the greatest psalm, uh, his greatest psalm of repentance, Psalm 51. He said, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you, God, only have I sinned. David wasn't minimizing the wrong he had done to himself or against the other people. He wasn't minimizing that, but he was instead putting them in contrast to the wrong that he had done against an infinitely holy and infinitely innocent God. David knew that even an innocent baby, even his innocent baby, could not hold a candle to the innocent, holy God of the universe. And David knew that his sin was the most vile, most abominable, most offensive attack on God that has ever been. God had done him no wrong. In fact, God had done the complete opposite. God had blessed him. He had given him a kingdom. He had given him victory in war. He had given him a family before Bathsheba. He had given him wealth. He had given him anything and everything that all people would have wanted and desired. And how did David repay him? It wasn't obedience. It wasn't praise. No, it was worse. But it wasn't even just to turn around and slap him in the face or to kick him in the teeth. No, it was much more wicked than that. It was a nail in the hand. You see, David took the blessings of God and he weighed them against a momentary desire. And giving in to that desire, he committed a grave sin that ultimately, in the full scope of time, nailed God himself to a cross. And my friends, our sin... Every one of them has done the same. Our sin nailed God to a cross. And for that reason, more than any other, we should hate our sin. Our sin, my sin, your sin, put the only truly innocent man who has ever lived on a cross. Sin should be the most hated thing in the universe. It hurts us, it hurts those around us, and it hurts God, and ultimately it put Jesus on a cross. And yet, yet, only God, in His infinite wisdom, could take the most hate-worthy thing in all the universe, sin, and bring something good from it, which just happens to also be the cross. You see, something we must understand, something so fundamental, fundamental about God, something so crucial and key in God's character and nature that we must know is this, that God hates sin and that he will not leave sin unpunished. I was talking with Ryan, and he helped me to see this, so thank you, Ryan. God hates sin. 
And he will not leave sin unpunished. You and I should hate sin, yes. It's utterly offensive. And to the people around us, to God, right, it's utterly offensive. But if there's anyone in the universe who truly knows how offensive sin is and who should hate it rightfully so, it is God. And because God hates sin, and because he knows just how destructive it is, and because he loves us, and because he does not want to see us destroyed by sin, God went about doing something about it. But you see, to deal with sin is no easy matter. To deal with sin means nothing short of blood. And not just the blood of bulls and goats as in the old days, but his very own blood. I think George Otis Jr. says it best when he says, One does not solve an unlovely problem with a lovely solution. That's like sentencing a convicted murder to a week's worth in a florist shop. It doesn't help him, and it certainly devastates society. If, we all, desire, if all we desire to do is protect society, then full punishment is sufficient. But God wanted more than this. He wanted the protection of society and the reformation of a sinner. God could not deal with our sin in some lovely manner. It had to be bloody. But if God was going to save us, he couldn't just obliterate us either. He would, be, he would be right to strike every one of us down right now if he wanted to. But he'd lose us. And he doesn't want that. You see, God hates sin, and in his justice, he will rid the world of it. And yet at the same time, he loves man, the very ones who sin. And he wants to save as many as who will come to him. And this seeming dilemma, this problem that would be impossible for you and me to solve, to figure out, God reconciled on the cross. He sent his son as a voluntary sacrifice, as an innocent sacrifice, as the only one able to rectify the absolute destruction and decay of relationship that our sin had made with God and with man. And though our sin did literally put Jesus on a cross, the cross did not kill Jesus. For you see, no man took Jesus' life from him. Jesus said it himself, no man takes my life from me, but I give it up freely of my own accord. But rather, he died from voluntary identification with sin. The cross is at one and the same time the most beautiful and most hate-worthy object. The Bible, speaking of the cross, calls it the offense of the cross and the glory of the cross. It's an offense, it's abhorrent, and it's hate-worthy because it should never have been. You guys... We don't have to sin. Sin is a choice. And if we hate our sin rightly, we don't have to do it. If we see what our sin does to God, we shouldn't want to sin. 
But at the same time, the cross is gloriously beautiful because through it, God has made a way for hopeless sinners with no way of saving themselves, with no way out, with nothing going for them. He has made a way for them. If we would but see our sin, hate our sin, and forsake our sin, he has made a way for us. I think Charles Finney says it best when he says, if the love manifested in the cross does not subdue the selfishness of sinners, their case is hopeless. My friends, there is nothing more life-changing, nothing more powerful, nothing more course-altering than the cross. And we must look to the cross tonight. And as we do, I pray that God gives you a holy hatred of sin. The band can go ahead and come up. And as the band comes up, what is our response tonight? I think the first thing that we can do is very just very simple. Do it right now as you sit in your seat. And it's just to ask God to give you a holy hatred of sin. Right now, just ask Him if, if to give you a taste, even a taste of what His hatred of sin is. And it doesn't have to be this, God, give me thine hatred of sin. It doesn't have to be all fancy. Just right now in your seat, God, just help me to hate sin like you hate it. If he hasn't already begun to do that, ask him now. And then for the remainder of our response time, we're going to respond the way that David responded. You guys, David messed up really bad. And part of the reason he messed up so bad was because he just simply didn't hate his sin. He didn't hate sin in his life. But after he sinned greatly, after he messed up so badly, he figured it out. And David learned to hate his sin. And, and once he learned, that's when he wrote Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is so beautiful because it's a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of asking God to forgive, to cleanse, to renew. But it's also a psalm of a man who not only saw his sin for what it was, but a man who truly hated his sin. And so tonight, what we're going to do in response is we're going to pray through Psalm 51. So every one of you guys has a Bible. You have a physical Bible. You got one in front of you. You've got one on your phone. You can Google search it. You got the world at your fingertips on your phone. You can pull up a Bible. And so what I want you to do is I want you to read through Psalm 51, and I want you to pray through it. But, but we're going to be specific when we pray because there are certain things that David asks God to do. In fact, there are 14 different things that David asks God to do. Now, I'm not asking you to pray all 14 of these different things. I believe God, that the Holy Spirit is going to point out one or two or, or a handful of things. He's going to point out some of these to you. And they're going to be up on the screen. I put them up there just to help see some of them clearer. He asks things like, have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions, create in me a pure spirit or a pure heart, restore to me the joy of salvation. Make me whiter than snow. Look, guys, 
David didn't hate his sin before he committed adultery. You guys, my prayer is that you would never have to get to a point where you, you have to write your own Psalm 51 because you didn't hate your sin. Yes, we all, we've all sinned. But my prayer is you would never get to a point where you have to write a Psalm 51 because you didn't hate your sin. David's sin, was so, it led to so much calamity and destruction and pain. Let us not treat our sin so lightly like it doesn't matter. We should hate our sin. And so tonight, if in this room you're not a follower of Jesus, then I pray that the Holy Spirit is stirred in your heart to see the depravity of your heart and your sin and that you've begun to hate the life that you've lived. I don't say that meanly, but I pray that you would hate the life that you've lived. And I pray that tonight you would know Jesus and that you would make a willful, conscious, deliberate choice to confess your sins, to repent of them, and to turn to Jesus and he, to know that he is worthy of your life and he is worthy to be followed. And then tonight, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, hey, I don't know if this message applies to me, then I want you to know that David for all intents and purposes, was a Christian. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet he sinned so gravely. But he was restored. Friends, we must see our sin as God sees our sin. And we must hate our sin as God hates it. So tonight, if you're not a Christian, then my encouragement to you is to get right with Jesus. And if tonight you are a Christian then my encouragement with you to you is to get right with Jesus. Lord Jesus, would you just speak to us? We trust you, oh God. I pray that you would take my words and you would magnify them, that you would be glorified and that eternity would be changed even tonight, God. Let us have a hatred for sin that would lead to transformed lives, God. Let these not be hollow words. Let these not be resounding brass, God, but let these be life-changing words. Holy Spirit, only you can do that. Seal these words, God. Seal these words, Jesus. Speak. I trust you, Jesus.